Good morning, church. It's good to see all of you here uh, this morning. Um, if this is your first Sunday, my name is Matt Ortiz. I'm one of the pastors here, and if we haven't met yet, uh, you could do me a huge favor. Please introduce yourself to me after the service is over. I'd love uh, to get to know you. Um, we are in a series called Following Jesus, and uh, we're looking at, um, this is actually season three of that series, and um, we are looking at Jesus' famous Sermon on, on the Mount. Now, I don't have slides for you this morning, but I do have a handout uh, for you that you can use to, tr- uh, to follow along uh, with the message, and hopefully that's helpful. And the text is printed on the back side of that insert. So, here's where I want to start. I want to start with something that I've noticed over the years. Something that I, I, I didn't know that I didn't notice because I didn't recognize it. But once I did, I saw it everywhere, and that's this. That most teaching in most churches is not uniquely Christian. That sounds pretty heavy, right? That's a pretty crazy thing to say. I, I want to show you what I mean by, by referring to three different stories that teach the same same lesson. How many of you uh, are familiar with Aesop's fables? A few of you. They've been around forever. They teach you a lesson, right? There's, a, there's an Aesop's fable about a hungry lion who spots a sleeping bunny rabbit, and he's about to pounce on the bunny rabbit when he sees a big juicy deer, and he decides to chase the big juicy deer instead but the deer is too fast, he can't catch it, and so he goes back to the rabbit. But the rabbit's gone. And so the lesson being taught is, that's what you get for being greedy, don't be greedy. How many of you remember VeggieTales? Yeah, woohoo! Some of the funniest cartoons of all time. And I think every single Christian on the planet had their DVDs at one point. I mean, and yeah, yeah, VHS, that's right. This was the early 90s. So, I I mean, it was funny because uh, there were jokes the kids didn't understand, like the Monty Python references and everything. (laughs) So great. They had a particular MO for their episodes, and one MO can be seen in an episode where Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber tell a story about Madame Blueberry, a talking blueberry who lives in a treehouse next to a lake. And she's blue because she doesn't have enough stuff, so she buys a bunch of stuff at Stuff Mart to make her happy. Now, her treehouse becomes so full that the tree bends so that the house is hanging sideways over the lake. And what happens? All of her stuff goes sliding across the floor, out the back door, into the lake, and it sinks to the bottom. That's not all. Once all the stuff fell out, the tree springs back into place, flinging the treehouse through the sky, and it crashes into a million pieces. The end. And then Bob the tomato and Larry the cucumber in the episode by quoting Proverbs 15:27 that says, He who is greedy threatens his own house. 
So the lesson being taught is that's what you get for being greedy. So don't be greedy. Third story. Take a Bible story like the one in 2 Kings about Gehazi. Gehazi is a servant who steals money and clothes from a guy who was just healed from leprosy. And Gehazi lies about his thievery so he can keep what he stole, but then he gets caught and so he gets cursed with leprosy. And so the lesson being taught is that's what you get if you're greedy, so don't be greedy. None of those lessons contain any of Christianity's message of the gospel, the truth of Jesus, of who he is and what he has done that we need him to save us and to change us, to make us more like him. Moralistic lessons like those are the most common lessons taught in churches and they're not even uniquely Christian, even if. They use Bible stories and other scriptures. It's a misuse of the Bible, and it's incredibly common. You can even turn stories about Jesus into an Aesop's fable for a moralistic lesson. You don't need the Bible for that. Just use a collection of Aesop's fables, and you're good. It's the same thing. Christianity is gospel-centered. Jesus teaches us that. He wants us to get it, and he knows that we'll miss it. So whenever Jesus talks about how we should live, whenever he talks about how we should behave, he also talks about how we get the power, how we get the heart to live that way. Jesus is not just concerned about our behavior. He is also concerned about our hearts. What we see throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is how we should live, that on our own we can't live that way, but in and through Jesus Christ we can. We see that over and over throughout the Scriptures, and Jesus points that out right here. He makes it clear right here in just six, these six verses in his sermon. And the first one, if you're taking notes, is this, that Jesus teaches us how we should live. And in verse 21 and 22, it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying it is not enough to just not kill someone. But, he, but we, he's saying that we also break this commandment with our anger, our insults, and name-calling? Well, what's Jesus talking about here? You might think, if you've read any of the Bible, time out. One second. Didn't Jesus get angry with people? He sure did. Like with the money changers in the temple, right? And, and didn't Jesus' teachers and, and Jesus' prophets and even Jesus himself call people fools? Yes. But there's a difference that gets lost that we don't see in the English translation. 
First of all, Jesus' teachers and prophets were addressing people who think of themselves as being wise, but are really so blind that they don't see the destruction that they are bringing into their own lives and the lives of other uh, people. And in this passage, Jesus is getting at a certain kind of anger. If you have the NIV, your translation probably says something like, anyone who says to a brother or sister, sister, Raka, is liable to judgment. Raka? What in the world does that mean? Well, in the context, it sounds like an insult. The translation is difficult. But it's like saying to someone, you nothing, you non-entity, that's kind of a lame insult, right? I mean, couldn't you think of anything more creative than that, you know? It sounds weak until you realize that when Jesus uses the word raka, what it means, what it's referring to, is a heart and an attitude of dismissiveness, of contempt, of disdain, of, of condescension, of belittling someone because they are nothing to you. And they are nothing to anybody else. Jesus' anger was actually rooted in a selflessness and a concern for others. Uh, he had a love for the offender. He had a love uh, for those who were wronged by the offender. And he had a love for God's truth. There was no raka in his anger. You remember when, when people spit on Jesus and ripped out his beard and punched him in the face and, and he got beaten ruthlessly, ruthlessly? What did he do? How did he respond to that? He prayed and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If somebody spit on you, if I just walked up to you and spit on you, and punched you in the face, how would you respond? If someone did that to me, I know how I would respond. Not like Jesus. Right? Right. Somebody's honest here. Somebody knows what I'm talking about. That's right. Scrapping. That's exactly right. Because we want revenge, right? They hurt us, we want them to hurt. We'll have contempt for them. You know why? Because our anger is not based in love. You know what our anger is based on? It's based on pride. It's based on ego. It's based on being offended. We're hurt. We want to hurt them back. Now, how can you tell if that's in your heart? Well, when someone hurts you and someone insults you, deep down, do you kind of wish that they would be humiliated because of what they did or hurt because they hurt you or that somebody would just put them in their place, that you would see them suffer? Do you hope for that? Do thoughts of those kinds of things happening to them uh, give you some kind of comfort? 
Maybe you're like, no, I'm not really like that. Maybe you're just more passive and you decide, you know what? They're not worth it. They're nothing. And you get dismissive, you devalue them. None of that is rooted in love. It is not like Jesus' anger. Jesus teaches us that a sinful, angry heart is what leads to sinful, angry actions. You know, being involved in, in prison ministry, you have one idea of, of the guys who are locked up. You have a total different idea once you go in and you meet them and you hear their stories and you talk with them, you get to know them, and you spend several days in a row uh, with them. Being involved in a prison ministry like that, I met men convicted of murder. And after meeting them and, and hearing the story and what was happening, I mean, they weren't even trying to justify what they did. I mean, guys, that they knew that they deserved to be locked up in jail. But after hearing the story, I was reminded that given the right circumstances, we are all capable of the same thing. We are. We all have the same sinful, angry heart that is capable of leading us to sinful, angry actions. Now, it is no excuse, but if I experienced their family life, if I experienced their abuse, if I experienced their circumstances, I could easily do the same thing. And if I didn't, it would only be by the grace of God, not because I was any better. My heart is just as capable. Jesus says that his standard is not just don't kill. Jesus' standard is don't hold a grudge. Don't be bitter. Both come from the same heart. And beyond that, Jesus teaches us that we should realize that everyone, including people in prison, are made in the image of God. Their life is precious. Don't look down on them. Love them. Yes, Jesus does get angry, but it is never unloving. Our anger is almost always sinful. This tough one, huh? Uh, we kind of hope Jesus would lower the bar a little bit, right? Or maybe uh, you don't agree with what I'm saying. And that's fine. You don't have to. But realize that I'm just quoting Jesus here. So you've got to come to grips with whether or not you disagree with Jesus. If you feel a spirit of, res of resistance or not wanting to accept it, there's a very good chance that you just don't see the sin in your own heart. And you think that you're better than other people. I'm telling you, like maybe, maybe you're bored in your Christianity. Maybe you're just blah in your Christianity right now. You're just kind of going through the motions, treading water, whatever. One of the best things that you could do is to ask God by his spirit to show you the sin in your heart. What? <laughs> yes, that's one of the best things that you can do. Because we all have blind spots 
We can't see them. We need the Holy Spirit and the church, you know, our brothers and sisters, to help us see those blind spots because blind spots are dangerous. And then once we see the sin in our heart, then we have an incredible gratitude for God and his grace. It will radically transform your relationship with God. So my encouragement to you this morning, for all of us, including me, is to regularly ask yourself, every day if you have to, maybe several times a day, have I thought or acted unkindly or unsympathetically towards anyone? Did I, did I, is there anybody that I did not love with the love of Jesus? Ask the Holy Spirit to bring those things to mind, and he will. He'll remind you of how you gossiped about somebody, which is so easy to do, isn't it? Because we need to pray for them. He'll remind you of how you complained about someone. He'll remind you of the bitterness that you have in your heart towards someone. He'll remind you of your lack of kindness or your lack of gentleness or your lack of respect, even in, whether how you treat people in person or, or in social media, whatever. He will remind you also that even if you don't do any of those things you wanted to. We have that in our heart. And you know what? It's not just unkind. It is hellish and it smells like sulfur. Jesus' teaching on this is pretty intense. Jesus says, I want my disciples to treat everyone as being made in the image of God because they are. That's how you should live that's what you should do. But then Jesus teaches us in our second point, on our own we can't. On our own we can't live like this. Verse 18, whoever relaxes, he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who here can live like that? No one. And you're probably feeling that right now too, huh? I know I am. And Jesus, Jesus drives us home in these verses. In fact, he says in, in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says, don't think that just because I show up talking about grace and forgiveness that I think it doesn't really matter how you live. It matters. And Jesus is serious about God's law. Jesus is not giving us guidelines. He's not giving us suggestions if you're having a good day and you have the energy, do this. 
He's not giving us just, he doesn't leave us with biblical principles. Stuff you should do if you want to have a good financial life. Stuff that you should do if you want to have a, 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 good, a good marriage. If you feel like it. No. Jesus lays down the law. <laughs> and he says that your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, now let me tell you something. When Jesus' listeners heard Jesus say that, they didn't go, he's kind of exaggerating a little bit. He doesn't really mean that. I just got to do more good than bad. That's not what Jesus is teaching. And so Jesus' listeners would have, they would have been shocked to hear Jesus say that. They would have been stunned. I mean, exceed the Pharisees? I mean, the Pharisees were like the monks of their day. Everything they said, everything they ate, everything they wore, everything they did was rigidly compliant with hundreds and hundreds of rules. And so the listeners would have heard what Jesus said and, say, and, and they would have responded like, how can you possibly expect any of us to be as righteous as that? And Jesus' point is, you can't. Even the Pharisees, as religious as they are, are not righteous. And Jesus says, even if for some reason you can keep the rules, it's not enough. I also demand that your motives be pure. You got to have the attitudes and motives of a heart that lead you to be genuinely and purely kind and loving. And then, and then he applies this uh, to commandments about murder, commandments about adultery, commandments about lying and revenge, commandments about loving others and being generous. And the response that Jesus wants us to have is not, I guess I need to try a little harder. That's got to count for something, right? That's not the response that he's looking for. The response that Jesus is looking for from us is, I can't do this. When we read the scriptures and we see all that God's law requires, or, or when we read the great stories about the great heroes of the faith and their examples of obedience and faithfulness and courage and, and love and, and integrity, when we see that, we might be inspired for a minute or two if we don't take it too seriously. Because... All that God requires and these good examples can be crushing because we know that we can't live like that. And this is what God demands? So Jesus teaches us, here's how you should live. And on your own, you can't live like that. The third, my last point here is Jesus teaches us through Christ we can in and through Jesus Christ, you can live like that. See, once you see that you can't do it, it pushes us to Christ in verse 17 where he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The reason that, that he says I have not come to abolish the law is because he still wants us to obey God's law. 
Because it's good. I'll show you in a couple of ways. I've been told that it's good to serve my wife. That I should serve my wife. Can I get an amen? Thank you, thank you. I can serve my wife in one of several ways. I can serve her out of reluctant obligation and say, fine, I'll wash these stupid dishes because I'm supposed to. I can serve her to get something from her. Hey, babe, I washed those dishes. I'm going to be hitting you up for some favor, something. Or I can serve her because I love her and I want her to be pleased because I love her. We can serve God out of reluctant obligation. We can serve him to get something from him. Or we can serve him because we love him and we want him to be pleased because we love him. So then the law becomes a delight. And Jesus says the law is good in this way. It could be horrible and crushing and rip you apart. Another, but here, like this, in the law in its place, the right use, it can be a delight. Secondly, I've been told that it's bad to put milk in my gas tank of my car. <laughs> I lied. I have not been told that. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever said that. Because why would you need to say that? It's obviously dumb, right? Why is it dumb? Well, it violates the design of the car. And there will be a breakdown. The engine is designed for gasoline. The law shows us the nature of God. We are made in the image of God to reflect his nature. God tells us to forgive because he is forgiving. And since we are made in his image, we are designed to forgive. If we don't forgive, it violates the design of who we are. And there will be a breakdown. Emotionally, physically, relationally. Jesus loves us too much to say that he's abolished the law. He loves us and wants the best for us. And Jesus wants us to love his father and to become more like his father. You see, the law is not just some random rules. You are made in the image of God. You are made to reflect his nature. That is why Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and why he came to fulfill it. Now, how is the law fulfilled? Well, the law can be fulfilled in a couple of different ways. You can either keep the law or pay the penalty for breaking the law. You can either stop at a stoplight or roll through the stoplight, get a ticket, pay for it. Either way, the law is fulfilled. The law of God is a life of complete 
love, of complete loyalty, of complete justice, of complete integrity, of complete peace in Jesus. And Christ comes to earth in our place as our representative to fulfill the law in two ways. First, he fulfills the law by obeying the law perfectly for us. And secondly, he fulfills the law by paying the penalty for us on the cross. And so what that means is that when we trust Jesus to be our representative, when we trust that that he lived for us and gave us credit for it, and that he died for us and gave us credit for that, then you know what we get? We get the reward that Jesus earned. That is the good news. You know, um, Martin Luther writes about how this changes absolutely everything. He's got a phenomenal, um, the the preface, the preface to his commentary in the book of Galatians is mind-blowing and amazing. Once you understand that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, Luther teaches, it totally changes your relationship to the law and to yourself. It, it, in, in, in his preference for his commentary, he, he says if you, the temptation is to look to the law or biblical principles as your Lord and as your Savior, as your righteousness. And if you do, you'll be crushed. You'll be condemned by the law and yourself. And Luther says that the law is not your Lord. The law is not your Savior. The law is not your righteousness. Jesus is. And when we see this, he says, we will love to obey the law and delight in the law because we love Jesus and delight in Jesus. The law no longer condemns us and we no longer condemn ourselves. And this not only leads us to obey the law to show our love for Jesus, it also leads us to obey the law to show our love towards others. That is the power of of the gospel. The law, biblical principles, whatever, they don't have any power. They never saved anyone or changed anyone. John Calvin, he draws it out even further. He says, if if Jesus fulfilled the law completely for us by living for us and dying for us, then Jesus doesn't change our relationship uh, to the law uh, and and with ourselves, but to everything. This is one of my longer quotes. Thought about cutting it down, but it's just too good. Listen to to what this boring theologian has to say. This, This stuffy intellectual Oh my gosh, this is so awesome, actually. He says this, in light of the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done, it follows that every good thing we could think or desire is to be found in the same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing Sin offering for our righteousness, marred that we may be made fair. He died for our life, so that by him fury is made gentle, wrath appeased, 
Darkness turned into light. Fear reassured. Despisal despised. Debt canceled. Labor lightened. Sadness made merry. Misfortune made fortunate. Difficulty easy. Disorder ordered. Division united. Humiliation dignified. Rebellion subjected. Intimidation intimidated. Ambush uncovered. Assaults assailed. Force forced back. Combat combated. War warred against. Vengeance avenged. Torment tormented. Damnation damned. The abyss sunk into the abyss. Hell transfixed. Fixed. Death dead. Mortality made immortal. And he goes on to say, in short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness, all misfortune. If we are able to boast with the apostle saying, oh hell, where is thy victory? Oh death, where is thy sting? It is because by the spirit of Christ promised to the elect that we live no longer but Christ who lives in us. And he goes on to say, we are by the same spirit seated among those who are in heaven so that we are content in all things and we are comforted in tribulation, joyful in sorrow, glorying under attack, abounding in poverty, warmed in our nakedness, patient among evils, living in death. And he ends with, this is what we should seek in the whole of scripture, truly to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. If one were to sift thoroughly the law and the prophets, he would not find a single word which would not draw and bring us to him. Amen? Oh, man. What he's describing here is is the life, the, the fruit, the result of knowing Jesus and trusting in Jesus and believing in Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us. It is a righteousness from Jesus that surpasses, his, that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. The law could never do this for us. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus summarizes and says, he uses some illustrations. There are two gates, two roads, two foundations, two trees. He calls us, you know, he wants us to choose the right one. And it's tempting to think that Jesus is offering us the choice between obeying the law and not obeying the law. But that misses Jesus' point, totally misses it. When we see that Jesus talks about giving to the poor, he's not talking about people who give to the poor and people who do not give to the poor. He talks about people who give to the poor to get applause and appreciation and recognition from the world and then people who don't even congratulate themselves in their own hearts. When he talks about praying, he doesn't talk about people who pray and people who don't pray. He's talking about people who pray to get attention from God and attention from others and people who pray as a response to Jesus and his grace. 
Jesus wants us to be motivated in our obedience, not out of fearful self-preservation or pride, not motivated out of our insecurity or trying to prove ourselves. That is just exhausting. It'll suck the life right out of you. I know so many people who've turned their back on Christianity because they thought that's what Christianity was. Because that's what gets taught everywhere. And it's either taught in a hellfire and brimstone kind of a way, leveraging shame, using a stick, or it gets taught with the carrot. And it's like a self-help seminar with Bible verses. Either way, it's law and condemns you. Jesus wants us to be motivated with hearts full of joy and gratitude by who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And if you believe this good news of Jesus, the gospel, and, and, and have been changed by the knowledge of Christ that, that he's fulfilled the law, you will have a righteousness from Jesus that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I'll, I'll end with this, okay? When Jesus tells you to love everybody, because nobody is a nobody, you could do it because I don't want God to punish me and send me to hell. Or hopefully God will see how awesome I am and give me a prize. Or we can remember, as Paul teaches us in Philippians, that Jesus Christ, even though he had all of the glory and all of the honor and was equal to the Father, made himself a nobody. He made himself Raka for us. So that we, even though we should be nobodies forever, we now have a name that lives forever and we will live as sons and daughters of the King forever. It doesn't get any better than that. And so what that means is that now I can show love and grace to others because Jesus showed love and grace to me. The law, biblical principles, whatever you want to call them, they cannot save you, they cannot change you. Only the gospel has the power to do that. The knowledge of what Jesus did for you will melt you into a person who gladly obeys the law of King Jesus because you love King Jesus. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? <sighs> Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to see how often whether consciously or probably more often subconsciously. We look to ourselves and our own effort to be okay with ourselves, with others, with you. God, I pray 
that you would show us our need for you. That you would show us the sin in our hearts, our lack of love for people, our lack of respect for people. The dismissiveness we have the devaluing we do. Thank you that you were not that way toward us. That even when we didn't want to have anything to do with you, you loved us. And you sent Jesus to live for us, to die for us, to raise again, to give us new life. (sighs) So that we could be united with you. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. This morning I pray that we would have a greater, deeper appreciation for Jesus, who he is and what he's done, and that you would fill our hearts with relief and humility and joy and courage and boldness and loyalty because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. God, I pray for those who are struggling with bitterness because they've been hurt. I I pray that you would replace that bitterness that can only come from Christ and the reassurance that we have in your love for us and that you would strengthen them to endure and that you'd fill their hearts with love for you and even the person who sinned against them. And God, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know that love and grace and peace, that that you would open their eyes to see it, open their hearts to believe it, that you would send your spirit to radically transform their, their life because the spirit always, always leads us to see Jesus and to love him. God, I pray in this time that you would help us, that you would enable us to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper through confession of sin, repentance, and resting in your grace with great love for you. We pray this in your name.